For the last 30 years, uh, Patricia and I have been working in missions. Although I have, was originally trained as a pastor, uh, and I worked with a few churches in the early days. Uh, but I found that to be a pastor, you need to have that long-suffering patience over the long haul. Uh, and I'm more of a big-picture person, and I want to get things done now and solve problems now. So uh, I ended up in missions. <laughs> He's moved it back. Okay, that was the wrong thing to do then. <laughs> I should move this way. So my message tonight uh, is going to be more big picture. And it's also going to be autobiographical to some degree. And it's going to speak about a journey that I've been going on in recent months. For the last 20 years or, or more, our focus has been in other parts of the world, most particularly Africa and Asia, in more recent years, Pakistan primarily. And we have been traveling uh, much of the time. I think last year we were gone for over 50% of the time. You think I need to hold it? Yeah. How's that? Is that better? Okay, up, right up there. Okay. So, we haven't had much time, or particularly myself, haven't had much time to focus on what's been going on here. Yeah, we know what's going on in general, but because most of my energy and focus has been on overseas and the various ministries that we work with, uh, I've been able to kind of lightly skate across the issues that um, run much more deeply for you. Um, but this year, of course, 2020 was quite, has been quite different because we have not traveled internationally at all this year because of you know what. And, uh, and so being here uh, all the time, even though I spend a lot of my time in Zoom meetings connected to various teams in various African countries and Pakistan, I still ha I have a lot more time, uh, which has been useful for getting the house sorted out, fixed up, so we hopefully can get on the road next year. But it's also given me more time to watch the news and listen to podcasts. And frankly, what I discovered in myself was that the more I did that, and as the months have gone on, the more I started to become anxious. Uh, even... Uh, starting to get angry about various things and frustrated. And sometimes, I, sorry to say, even hateful towards certain people. And it affected my sleep, it affected my well-being, and I started to have some mild depression uh, and starting to feel pretty pessimistic about the future. I had joined the world that you live in more fully than I have ever, had ever done before. And I found that within me there were certain hostilities, and, and I didn't like that. And I started to see other Christians, as I talked with other Christians, also struggling with some of the same things of fear and, and building of hostility. 
course, I have seen this many times in various African countries uh, where the norm is often ethnic conflict, tribal conflict, discrimination, persecution, and leading often to violence. And of course, there are some really horrible stories. Uh, we think of Rwanda in the 90s where Christians were killing Christians because of they were from different ethnic groups. And so my question to myself was, was I in danger of losing my Christian identity? Who am I? And what did I stand for as a Christian living in this culture? And I realized that I needed to get my balance back. And of course, that's what God, God's word does. It helps us to get our balance back. And so I was thinking, I've been reading through Romans. I thought, well, I'm not going to teach from the book of Romans. Um, but a passage that has really been an anchor for me uh, is Psalm 67. And I will explain that a little later. It's one of those passages that answer questions that we face in life. Uh, in Matthew 22, we learn from Jesus how to live. Loving God and loving our neighbor is how he sums up the entirety of the law. And we learn from, from Jesus also how to talk. Well, another passage of a great anchor. We learn about the Lord's Prayer the, that God gave us to learn how to talk to God. And so Psalm 67 that we're going to look at tonight is another one of those passages for me that anchors me and brings helps to bring my head back to where it needs to be. So let's pray as we uh, look at that psalm. Lord Jesus, thank you for bringing us here tonight. Thank you for all those who are connected in through other means. Lord, we come to you recognizing our desperate need for you to be able to live the life that you have called us to live. I pray that this, your word would root itself more deeply into our hearts and minds. And I pray this in your precious name. Amen. So, Psalm 67. I'm going to read the NIV version. May God be gracious and to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May, put, may the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you rule the peoples justly and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. Then the land will yield, yield its harvest and God, our God, will bless us. God will bless us and all the ends of the earth will fear him. What a great psalm that is. It's not a psalm that is tied to any particular event as we've been reading in uh, the psalms in the previous recent weeks. They've been tied to very much to David on the run from Absalom. Uh, and there are many other psalms that deal with specific historic issues in the church, uh, I mean, in, in Israel's life. 
this psalm is not a prophetic psalm, particularly, although you could see it in a little bit of that way, but it is not primarily a psalm of prophecy. So, what do we learn from this psalm? We obviously learn, first of all, from verse 1, that the, the source of all benefits and blessings is God himself. And so when we look for blessing, and when we look for it outside of God, we come up short. But this psalm tells us that we look to God, because God is the source of all benefits, and that ben those benefits flow from our uh, the undeserved love of God. And it's a truth that is critical to us at any point in time to help us to gain a proper perspective. And God's blessings make life on earth possible and make it also enjoyable. Now this first verse is actually a summary of a series of verses from Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 to 26. And I'd like you to turn there because we're going to spend a little bit of time in number 6. We're going to see an expanded version of this summarized first verse. Numbers 6, verses 22 to 26. God has been establishing the nation of Israel. He's been giving them instructions as they build the tabernacle, setting up the, the ways in which God wants his people to relate to him and to each other. And right at the end of that section in, Exodus, in Numbers, God tells Moses to give a message to Aaron, the priest, and his sons. And this is what he said. This is how you are to bless the Israelites. This is verse 22. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face to you, toward you and give you peace. Of course, we sing that at the end of every service. And then there's another one of those anchor, anchor uh, messages. You could almost say it's a kind of a Lord's Prayer of the Old Testament. It came from God, and it was an instruction, just as Jesus told us, uh, his disciples, how to pray. God told Moses to tell Aaron, this is how you, as the priest of all Israel, are to bless the nation. So let's have a look a little bit at that at this expanded um, uh, blessing. In verse 24, says, the Lord bless you and keep you. So what we learn from that is God's intention towards us is for their good, for our good. God wants us to have a life that is going well. And then in verse 25 he says, Make his face shine upon you. 
Now that is a very interesting phrase, the face to shine upon you, because that goes back to Exodus 34 to Sinai. When Moses goes up to Mount Sinai with the tablets that God has told him to prepare, and when he returns, of course, he comes back with the Ten Commandments. And following the request of Moses to share his glory, he hides Moses so that he could just get a glimpse. If he were to show all of his glory, then Moses wouldn't have been alive to tell the tale. But what he did show him made Moses' face shine. And so when we look at that, we see that this is a sign of God's promise to be present if we follow him. So we also see that God, from verse 25, that his face shining upon us speaks about a life lived well. If we are living with God's presence with us, guiding us, in other words, following his ways, then we can say that we're living a life well. So God's promises in this passage that the life going well is going to take care of us, keep us. A life led well if we allow his presence to guide us. And then in verse 26, it says, The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. That implies God's pleasure and also his affection for his people. God's love. And the result of that is peace. And what does peace bring? Well, it brings an absence of conflict. It brings a fullness of well-being so that we can enjoy, have joy. We can have peace. We can have contentment. And so, God promises in this passage that we can have a life that is going well, because he's going to keep us. We can have a life that is lived well, and we can have a life that feels as it should. And here we see God's grand plan for mankind to shape each person and this world into his home, so that his home becomes our home. And we see that God wants us to flourish. It's a word that I use quite a lot these days in talking to people. Um, and I talk about the flourishing life that God intended for his people. A life going well, a life lived well, and a life that is feeling as it should. That's the promise that God has promised us. So God wants us to have more than salvation. More than just salvation from the penalty for sin, although that this is critical. God wants us to have more than a hope for a future when we will be with Him, even though that will be a glorious day. God wants us to flourish now. In John chapter ten, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and life to the full. So that life is not a life in the future. It is a life that is possible in the now. We call that the abundant life. 
So God's flourishing is a package. You can't have one piece and say that we're flourishing in God. We have to have all of it. Life to go well, we need to live life needs to be live well, and we need to be experiencing a life that feels as it should. Now, 2020 was a is a it's been a year of shaking. The virus has killed many, destroying our economy. Poverty in this country has deepened. There have been violent reminders that we're not all fully equal. There have been civil disturbances, political upheavals. And on top of that, the usual floods, hurricanes and fires. So it raises the question, is, it, is the flourishing life possible in the midst of such shaking? This has always been a big question wherever I go in the world. For us, this is quite kind of a culmination, almost a perfect storm, if you like, of upheavals in 2020. But, but most of the places I work, and right now it's Mozambique, a very poor country that's experienced great flooding and disasters, now experiencing terrorist activity in the north, Cameroon, with a lot of fighting going on, Boko Haram's involved, the terrorist organization. And other places as well, Pakistan, too. For them, shaking is normal. Shaking is what life has been like for many years. In Pakistan, the Christians I work with were born into a world that was hostile. They were born in, they grew up and live in a world, that a country that discriminates against Christians. Sometimes even violence and bombings of churches. This is their life. Is it possible for a Pakistani Christian to experience the kind of flourishing that we see in Numbers chapter 6? Is that possible? My answer is that it is. I'm an optimist in this. I'm not an optimist in everything because I'm British. Uh, I'm not like Americans who tend to be much more optimistic. Us British are always a half glass, glass half full, empty people. But in this regard, I'm an optimist because as I look at the book of Acts, what do we see in the uh, day, right at the beginning of the church? We see trouble and strife and conflict and hostility and persecution and death. And we see that down through church history. Shaking in many societies has been the norm for 2,000 years. Persecution, destruction, and discrimination. But it didn't deter the church from growing and achieving some measure of flourishing and enabled us to be here today. All of the great social institutions that we benefit from came from Christians who believed that God had promised more than a future hope. Was it everything that God wants? No. But when the conditions imposed by systems riddled with sin and corruption, it's still we can create some form of life going well, life lived well, and life feeling as it should. So it's good 
to pursue a flourishing life as a follower of Jesus. But there's a danger if we end the story at this point and say, yes, God wants to bless us, we can enjoy a flourishing life. And the danger that I have experienced living, we have lived 16 years in South Africa under apartheid, and we saw a system where down through the years, the Christians were, were happy to enjoy the flourishing life, but they weren't willing to share it with the majority population. So 20% of the country's population dominated and discriminated against a majority. And, and South Africa, as we lived there, we realized this is the most Christian church or church-going country that we'd ever been in. This was the most tithing church that we had ever been in. But if we only see the blessings of God for just for us and focus and end the story there, we're going to have a problem. And that's why Psalm 67 is really so important. Because it gives the reason for God's blessing of human flourishing for those who live in his presence. And that reason goes way beyond ourselves. So let's continue on in Psalm 67 and look at verse 2. What does it say in verse 2? So that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all the nations. So God's blessing us is not just obviously for our own benefit as his followers, although it is. But it is so much more than that. And that's this psalm really nails it so what the reason why God wanted to bless us, or a big part of that reason, is so that God's ways would be known on earth and his salvation would come to the nations. In Acts chapter 2, we're not going to go there, but there's stories in, in from chapters 2 to 6. We see, the, we see some of the struggles of the early church. And one of those struggles was that, was that there were the privileged group who were getting all the goodies and there were others who were not getting a good share of the good things. And so some did not have their physical needs being met. Fortunately, the church didn't say, well, we're only interested in spiritual things. That's got nothing to do with us. But they saw that, as we've seen from Numbers chapter 6, the gospel brought a fullness of life, a new fullness of life that includes the physical needs. And so when one group complained to the leaders, the church took action and took care of the people. And I've been reading recently church history and what we see in the first 300 years before Constantine 
is that the primary message of the church that caused Christianity to grow was not the evangelistic campaigns. I don't think they'd ever heard of that idea. But certainly people were obviously sharing their faith. But the greatest impact of the church and that caused it to grow and spread was what, how the church cared for one another. There's even a Roman governor who actually reports back to the emperor that there are no social needs that these Christians, the sect as he called them, he didn't have many good things to say about them, but one th good thing that he did say was that they took care of each other. So the mark of being a Christian in the early church and the witness of the early church was how they cared for one another. And I think this is a living expression of that first verse in Psalm 67, that the blessings that they received, they shared with others. This, um, pass this passage, this Psalm 67, really makes a big thing about the blessing of the nations so that they would come to salvation. So if we read on in verse 3, we see, May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. Verse 4, May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples with equity. And so as we act justly, people see a just God. As we act mercifully, we see a merciful God. As we act compassionately, we see a compassionate God. They see a compassionate God. May the peoples praise you, God. Verse 5, may all the peoples praise you. Verse 6, the land yields its harvest, God. Our God, God our God, blesses us. And again, we see that God cares about the whole life, not just a, quote, religious life. And then lastly, in verse 7, the psalmist says, May God bless us still, so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. And that brings it back, that the purpose of his blessing is not just that we would experience that, as much as he wants that to happen, but that that blessing would be a direct cause of the nations turning to God. Well, those, not everyone will, of course, as we've seen through history. So our message is first and foremost lies in how we live. Before we open our mouths and talk about the Lord, does our life of the good things of God so the question is does it look like today in 2020 that we're blessed by God that's a question you don't have to answer it but I now but it's a question I've had does it look like we believers in this situation that we find ourselves in are blessed by God is life feeling as it should? Are we joyful and thankful? Or are we anxious and hateful? I'm really glad, actually, that Pastor Brandon's been challenging us in this area of fear through these psalms that we've been studying very recently. 
because it was one of the things that God used to really challenge my thinking about where am I? Is my life feeling as it should as a child of the king? I'm not so sure it was. So I'm very grateful for those messages. Are the circumstances of our life going well? If so, then we celebrate. But then I say to myself, are the lives on circumstances of the lives of Christians in our community going well? If not, how can we help? Are the circumstances of life for Christians elsewhere in this country going well? Clearly, in some places, it is not. 15% of people in this country live below the poverty line, and it's getting worse through the virus impacts. And of course, we have a big issue today of racial justice. Some say the issue is overblown. So I decided I was going to find out, not from the news media, what the racial situation was like. I was going to talk to and read and listen to Christians from other ethnic groups. It was pretty sad and very challenging, I found, to me, because most of them spoke of, this is Christians, spoke of discrimination. Many of them spoke about the neighborhoods in which they lived were just mired in a cycle of poverty and crime. How can we help? That's my response. I don't know how I can help because I live on this mountain. I don't live in the inner city or where these places are. But at least my posture should be, how can I help? But then we need to broaden that further because when we are told by Jesus to love our neighbor as ourselves, that word neighbor is not people like us. Just like us. They're people who are near us. In fact, the word neighbor actually means the near ones. Because in the society in the Middle East, people lived like in many inner cities. They didn't live so much rurally, some did, but they were clustered together in these small communities of houses that were almost on top of one another. So when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, it wasn't saying, yeah, well, love that neighbor, but not that neighbor. It was love your neighbor. And I appreciate my friend Paul, who lives that out every day on this mountain, working with the homeless. And that is a real challenge for me to see that that love your neighbor going out into the community. And then I ask myself, are our lives as Christians led well? Well, that can get us into some uh, heavy subjects, like the state of our marriages in the Christian churches are not much better than that of the general culture. Um, Do we have, do we exhibit as the church mercy and compassion? For many, we seem to be known by what we hate. Is this what it means to live as followers of our Savior? And I find it very hard, as I've been struggling, as I've told you, I've been struggling these months. Jesus seemed to find it easy to balance truth and love, or great mercy and justice. 
So when we see the story of the, the woman caught in adultery about to be stoned, she was, she was worthy of being stoned in the le legally. But Jesus had mercy on her. But he also said when she, as she was about to leave and sin no more. So Jesus had a way of balancing in mercy and truth. I struggle with that. I tend to lean on one side particularly than the other. So what is... Sorry. Last one. Promise. What is at stake for us in 2020? As we look at Psalm 67, we see, I think, that what is at stake in 2020 is much more than who elect, gets elected at Congress, who ends up as a president, what happens about COVID, etc. What is at stake is the very gospel that we treasure. So the question is, how can we conduct ourselves as Christians in 2020 and beyond so that we can influence the nation in the next generation to become followers of Jesus? I suppose as I've got older, I start to think about the next generation. At, actually, at this stage, the great concern that I have is for our grandchildren. We have four young adult grandchildren now. They're called Generation Z. If I were in England, I would have said Z, but you wouldn't have understood a word I said. But Generation Z... 26% of the population are in this category and they are regarded as the first, first truly post-Christian generation. A large percentage of those claim no religious Christian identity at all. Yet, this same group are filled with anxiety and worry because the world feels so unstable, global warming, cannot, they cannot trust institutions. Am I ever going to be able to afford a house? And of course, all of this is made worse because they spend about nine, average of nine hours a day on social media, which just makes it much worse. This group values more highly than a moral position, but the idea of being inclusive. They see the church as intolerant, judgmental, hypocritical, and legalistic. How do we reach them? How do I reach my grandchildren in this kind of culture? I found, I was trained in apologetics, being able to give a defense for our faith. I don't find it very effective with that generation. What I do know is they care about relationships, they care about justice, and they care about tolerance. So, how do I relate? I don't have the answers, and I've been trying to read stuff on it so I could connect well with my grand our grandchildren, but what I do know is I need to live a life of love, I need to live a life of truth, and I need to exhibit mercy and compassion and have and agree with them where I can agree with them on the things that they believe. 
So to close, my aim is not to make myself or others feel inadequate, but to rather to lift our high, eyes higher to a higher perspective and to what, what is really at stake as we live our lives in this fractured world. If there was ever a need for a third way, it is now. A kingdom way that challenges us where we are complacent, where we are so certain about what is the most important in this time that we live in. And my hope is that Psalm 67 will cause us to say and do things in the weeks and months ahead that will be evidence of God's blessing and move people toward God and not away from God. Thank you. Let me pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we 